We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. On today's show, I want to talk about the Holy Spirit and what I've called the Holy Spirit trump card. I'm going to explain this and why I've used that analogy in some of the discussion around the Asbury Revival. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Good morning and welcome to The Rebellion. Thank you for listening into the show. I think we have a few newcomers that are joining the rebellion over the last few days. Some of you are coming into the rebellion as the result of the Asbury Revival conversation. And I'm grateful that you've decided to be part of this particular aspect of that dialogue. If you listen to the show on a routine basis at all, you know that one of my favorite verses is from the Proverbs. As iron sharpens iron, let one man sharpen another. I really think there's value in cognitive dissonance, in tension, in a little bit of friction. I think it needs to be done with respect and love, and I think that's part of what it means to be part of the body of Christ. The hand cannot say to the eye, I have no need of you. We're part of a body. We need all of the parts functioning in a healthy and robust way. And therefore, a little bit of tension, a little bit of disagreement is not necessarily a bad thing. Now, That's the context for pursuing truth, in my view. When you and I disagree, or even when we agree, the sharpening process is important because we're pursuing truth. We're not in the business about protecting our opinions. I want you to correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I want you to do it not just on the basis of your opinion or your feelings. I want you to use something more important than that. And I argue almost every day on this show that that thing, that measuring rod outside of the debate, outside of the argument or the disagreement, that measuring rod, that, that stone that we grind our blade of truth on is the rock of Jesus Christ, the word made flesh and dwelling among us, the revealed truth of God that we have in Scripture. The measuring rod outside of those things being measured that has been given to us through the revelation of God himself is the Bible. I believe that. I believe the scriptures are inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and true. And without that scale, that measuring rod, that ruler, that yardstick, use whatever analogy you want there, without that that outside authority to judge the debate, it all digresses to shouting, to anger, to vitriol, to feelings. And I love Ben Shapiro's quote that the facts don't care about your feelings. At the end of the day, as I've said on this show, when I was a college president, I didn't congratulate you on commencement day by saying, congratulations, you now have a degree in opinions. That would be absurd. That would be foolish. You go to college to learn something. You go to school, to university, to learn what's true in your, in your relative discipline of study. If you majored in biology, I want you to know a little bit more when you graduate than you did when you started when you were a freshman 
about the science of biology. If you're going to go to med school, I want you to understand genetics, DNA, physiology, biology. I want you to understand more when you graduate than you did when you started. I don't want you to just celebrate your opinions on graduation morning. And likewise, I've used this analogy before. If you graduated with a degree in engineering, then please tell me you're not going to design airplanes on the basis of your feelings. I want you to, to design that, that airplane on the basis of facts. Because if it, was, if it was constructed, if it was designed on your opinion or your feelings, then the thing isn't going to fly, and I don't want to get in it, nor do you. Likewise, if you graduated as a nurse and you're going to start administering medication to your patients on the basis of your feelings or your opinions. You're a very dangerous person. You're going to hurt people. Again, the facts don't care about your feelings when you're prescribing or administering medication to somebody. You get my point here? We need the sharpening process of truth in order to avoid hurting ourselves and hurting other people. And I think that's true in all areas of life. And I think it's particularly true when we're talking about theology, when we're talking about religion, when we're talking about Christianity. We don't get to define our own Christianity. Christianity is defined for us, objectively so. It's defined for us in the Bible. And if you're contradicting what the Bible says, or if I'm contradicting what the Bible says, then we need to be corrected by that measuring rod outside of our subjective feelings about Christianity about God, about Jesus Christ, about the Holy Spirit. You don't get to make it up as you go. That's one of the great difficulties I have with the emergent movement, the woke church, uh, new evangelicals, the red-letter Christianity, all of these subgroups of what they call Christianity, I would argue, are deviating from the standard, the orthodox definition, the clarity of what the Bible says and what the church has held for 2,000 years. I've mentioned to you the Wesleyan quadrilateral over and over again on this show. I think there's value in that. Tradition, in other words, history, the lessons of time. They've been around for 2,000 years for a reason. They've endured. They've been tested by the patriarchs, by the fathers of our faith. And we should hold tenaciously to the teachings of tradition and history. Reason, you've got a brain, use it. If somebody is making arguments that are fallacious, they're violating just common sense principles of sense, sense that's common, if they're committing fallacies of ad populum, ad hominem, non sequiturs, or arguments to authority, if you're making such claims or if somebody else is making such claims that just aren't grounded in good logic and reason, then we need to be prepared to call them out and say, well, it doesn't matter what everybody believes. Everybody could be wrong, as Osgina says. Truth is true even if no one believes it, and falsehood is false even if everyone believes it. Truth is true, and that's just the end of it. So the, the masses, the populace, ad populum, doesn't define what's true. The Bible does. That measuring rod outside of the population, the masses, the democratic vote, if you will. And, and likewise, if somebody's constantly attacking the individual rather than attacking the idea, that's a fallacy of ad hominem. Shooting the messenger rather than listening to the message. Just because somebody's a jerk or somebody is unlikable doesn't mean the things they're saying are untrue. 
And there are, I've gone through these fallacies before with you on this show. So my point is you have to have a standard. And that standard should include respect for the lessons of time, the lessons of history, tradition, the use of your brain, logic and reason, and experience. How's it working for you? I don't think referring to the emotion is necessarily bad. It's part of the balance of the quadrilateral. How's it working? Do you see evidence that this worldview is broken or that it is whole and workable and right? It, it, that's okay. Your experiential reality is important. And part of that is the feelings that you have about it, the existential reality of things that are around you, I suppose. And don't get distracted by my use of the word existential there. The existence, the reality of how it's working in your daily life, tradition, reason, experience, those are good things. Those are part of the evaluation process as you discuss any idea, any worldview, any behaviors, any decisions that we make as human beings. But you have to have a trump card at the end of the debate. And that trump card needs to be what? Revelation, scripture, history, experience, reason, and the trump card has to be the Bible. It has to be scripture. It has to be the objective understanding of God's revelation to man. I don't believe the trump card should be the Holy Spirit. I really don't think that's biblical. I don't think that is part of Christian doctrine. Because if the trump card is always going to be that personal experience, that personal feeling, which you should not discount, but it always needs to be checked against something. The Holy Spirit will never speak outside of the context of the Bible. The Holy Spirit never contradicts God's revelation to man. That's why we have the Bible, or at least that's part of why we have it, so that we can always go back to true north. Otherwise, we'll be tempted into defining our feelings as if they are akin to and equal to the words of God himself. You've got to sift the experience of the Holy Spirit through the grid of Scripture and test it. Let iron sharpen iron. Let the, the rock of the Scriptures, of the Word of God, sharpen whatever blade it is that you're using. That's the trump card. The Bible. The Scriptures. The written Word of God the objective revelation given to us to define all things. And if you don't have your understanding of Scripture down, and if you don't use that as the final go-to, then you're going to make mistakes. So let's take a break, and when I get back, I'm going to share a couple ex uh, anecdotes with you, a couple experiences that I've had over the course of my career, where people would play what I call the Holy Spirit trump card as a means of justifying something that they wanted to do in the first place, or... I just suspected, I, uh, I, it, it appeared to me that they were trying to just stop the debate and move a conversation along to the point of a decision that they wanted to make, and they used the Holy Spirit trump card in a dangerous way because it's the ultimate form of groupthink. It's the ultimate appeal to authority. It's the ultimate fallacy in some ways, in my view. Now, if you want to correct me, 
After we have this discussion, that's fine. Text me, email me, tell me where you think I'm wrong, but don't tell me how you feel about it. Tell me where in the Bible my questions right now are in error. All right, let's take a break. And when I get back, we'll start out with a couple stories and anecdotes to try to help set the context for what I'm trying to say right now. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion, and I'll be right back in a couple minutes. In 1978, George and Kate Tedford set out to protect Oklahoma businesses better. Today, their son and our CEO, Mark Tedford, is excited to carry on his family's legacy. Professional liability, compliance, property, workers' comp, health and life. Tedford Insurance's dedicated team gives you access to the nation's largest insurance providers, negotiates the best rates, and protects their own legacy like no one else. Call 918-299-2345 or tedfordinsurance.com. The Patriot Auto Group, locally owned and operated. The Patriot family of dealerships takes great pride in supporting the communities we serve throughout the great state of Oklahoma. The Patriot Auto Group's charitable work has been recognized throughout Oklahoma. Whether it's visiting one of our local dealerships or simply shopping and buying online with our doorstep delivery, the Patriot Auto Group takes the stress out of buying a new or used vehicle. And every purchase comes with our exclusive peace of mind, Patriot Pledge. You get engines for life, plus one-year maintenance, and 10 full years of roadside assistance, plus so much more. Sure, we can sell you a car, but supporting our community and lending a hand to our neighbors in need? Sold. The Patriot Auto Group. Proud Oklahomans in the communities we serve. Okay, welcome back to The Rebellion. So I said I'd like to share a couple anecdotes with you to try to explain what I mean when I say that we need to recognize that the sword of discernment has two edges. Number one, quench not the Holy Spirit. That's one edge of the sword of discernment. But the other edge of the sword of discernment is that we should test all things. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to us right now. Quench not the Holy Spirit, but we are also to test all things. Two edges to the sword of discernment as we cut through the ideas of life and we decide what's true. So please hear me. Asking questions about the Asbury Revival in no way is an attempt to quench the Holy Spirit. And I know that there are a number of apologists out there that are asking good questions. And the ones I'm listening to are not being acerbic or self-righteous, so they're not smirking or acting smugly when they basically are just trying to figure out what's going on at Asbury. That's not wrong, and you shouldn't distance yourself from those people just because they raised their hand and said, wait a second, I've got a question about what we're talking about right now. What's the Bible say about this? What does history, tradition, reason, experience, but the trump card, the Bible, Scripture, God's revelation. What do, what do those things say about this particular event? I don't care what it is. It can be political, it can be educational, it can be relational. You should always evaluate those things through the grid of the quad, in my view. I've said a thousand times over, we should never be so arrogant as to discard all the lessons of history and commit the ultimate 
crime of chronological snobbery, uh, C.S. Lewis there, by suggesting that the ideas we came up with five minutes ago trump all of the ideas that have endured the test of time over the course of history. It really annoys me when somebody is so arrogant as to just immediately dismiss Aristotle and Aquinas and Lewis and Tolkien, and the list goes on and on, of Chesterton. I mean, these guys were very bright individuals. I'm not as smart as they were, and therefore I think I ought to be quiet a little bit and listen from the teacher rather than presume to teach. So, the lessons of history are important. And like I said, experience, how's that working for you? You can tell on, on a daily basis whether the idea works or doesn't work. That's Part of that's rational, but some of that is emotional. Some of that is God-given feelings and discomfort, anxiety about a given situation. But you should never let that direct everything. You've got to use the lessons of history. Yes, acknowledge your experience. Don't dismiss it. Use your reason, your rational capacities to evaluate the situation, and at the end of that process, always apply all of those things to the ultimate measuring rod outside of everything being measured, and that is the Bible, the Scripture. So a couple anecdotes. Um, one, when I was a dean of students, before I came a, became a college president, I, <laughs> this, uh, I, I can't count the number of times I would have some, some young man would come into my office, and he was infatuated with a co-ed. He had basically fallen in love, love at first sight. He knew this girl was meant for him. And he would say to me that he really felt God was telling him that he needed to marry this girl. Or the Holy Spirit was really speaking to his heart that this girl was the right one, the right one for him. And again, I don't want to be disrespectful, because it's possible, but is it likely? Is it possible that the Holy Spirit was speaking and that God had led him to this point of, that's the right one, she's the one for me? Yes, it's possible, but what's another possibility here? The possibility is it's not the Holy Spirit speaking to him, but his hormones. And I would try to gently but very clearly point that out, especially if the girl was coming into me on separate occasions into my office and saying, uh, uh, tell this guy to leave me alone. He's stalking me. He's making me nervous. He's freaking me out. He needs to just move on. I'm not interested in him. But that, yet the guy, the young man, the 18, 19, 20-year-old college student would say, what the Holy Spirit is telling me that she's the one for me. Now, I don't know that it's the Holy Spirit. It could be your hormones. You're infatuated. Because the girl is not interested in you, and you just need to admit that and quit bugging her. Quit stalking her. Do you get my point here? The young man was playing the Holy Spirit trump card. And that wasn't fair to the other person. And at some point in time, it could even become illegal because the girl is saying, leave me alone. So that may seem a bit trivial to you, but let me use another one. When I was the president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University, I was on the board of the Wesleyan Church. It was a board of about 30 members. Now, most of the members of this board, for the entire Wesleyan Church worldwide, 
were district superintendents, pastors, some college professors, and whatnot, um, general superintendents, leaders of the church. They'd been around that particular denomination for their entire lives, and they had risen to the to the level of respect and success to the point where they were either put on the board by position or someone had elected them. Now, at one of these board meetings, there was a item on the agenda for discussion. It was the merger of the Wesleyan Church with another holiness denomination. It was actually the possibility of merging the Wesleyan Church with the Nazarene denomination. Now, this conversation has gone on for decades because the Nazarene Church and the Wesleyan Church and the Free Methodist Church are all very similar. Some would argue they're almost identical theologically. There are a couple minor issues that might distinguish between some of those denominations, but they all spring out of what is called the holiness movement. And this is the same denominational background of Asbury College. It's the same church tradition, theological assumptions that uh, are behind the Asbury revival. So this is relevant right now. I think it's very pertinent and very relevant to this conversation. So anyway, back to my story, back to the anecdote in play here. So while I was on the board of the Wesleyan Church when I served as president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University, I was on that board with about 30 other members. And like I said, those members included pastors and district superintendents, leaders of the church. And I was on that board by position because I was the president of one of the Wesleyan colleges. So during one of these board meetings, a discussion comes up about the possibility of merging the Wesleyan Church with the Church of the Nazarene. And there are, there are some clear advantages to do this. You get rid of a lot of administrative overhead. You'd have a relatively large denomination rather than two smaller ones. So merging, I'm not against that at all. In fact, I've argued repeatedly over the years that some of the Christian colleges should merge rather than having all of these very expensive uh, different campuses, uh, different administrations. Um, there, there'd be some wisdom in having one larger Christian university rather than multiple small ones. Financially, and maybe even programmatically and functionally, there'd be advantages there. So not at all, I'm not at all opposed to merger. That's not why I'm bringing this issue up. In fact, when the general superintendent brought this to the forefront, she was very much in favor of this. You could tell. She brought this issue before the Board of Trustees, and she said that she had been in conversation with the Church of the Nazarene leadership and that they were very open and interested in furthering the conversation about the possibility of the Wesleyan Church merging with the Church of the Nazarene. Again, in principle, I'm not opposed to this, but here's where this story goes. While she is presenting this, while the general superintendent, and in the Wesleyan Church, the general superintendent is the pope, if you will, the grand poobah. That's the highest position within the Wesleyan Church. You have the general superintendent, and then under the general superintendent, you have district superintendents with responsibilities for given districts of the church across the United States and across the world. And then pastors answer to those district superintendents. That's the way the church functions. So the hierarchy is general superintendent, district superintendents, and then pastors and lay leaders. That's the church. Well, as the GS, the general superintendent, brings this idea forward to the board, she's very much in favor of this particular idea. And while she's presenting it, she tears up 
And she says, and I quote, I can feel the winds of the Holy Spirit blowing through the room right now. Well, I'm looking around at the other 30 members of the board, the board of trustees of the church, and I'm thinking to myself, who in their right mind is going to raise their hand and defy the Holy Spirit right now? When the general superintendent played that card and said the winds of the Holy Spirit are blowing through the room right now while she tears up and presents this idea of merging the two churches, uh, she just shut down debate. Because anybody who questions raises their hand and says, well, I disagree, is going to be in danger of quenching the Holy Spirit. He or she is going to think, well, if I question this, are folks going to assume that I'm not being attentive to the leading of the Holy Spirit? So do you get my point? That's the ultimate appeal to authority. Can anything shut down debate and discussion more quickly than playing that card, especially if a leader in the church says, I feel the winds of the Holy Spirit are blowing through the room, and implicitly suggesting that the winds of the Holy Spirit are affirming the direction I want us to go. And when you do that with a, with a tear in your eye and a quivering voice, it makes it even more powerful, right? This is a very powerful way to make your point. Now, how does this story end? Well, I sat there, and again, I'm a lay leader. I'm not ordained. I don't have a theological degree. I'm a college president. And everybody else in the room, or at least close to everybody else, does have a theological background, if not a degree. Some of them even terminal degrees. They have doctorates in this stuff. I don't. But the one thing that concerned me is I knew that the Wesleyan Church's definition of Scripture was slightly different than the Nazarene Church's definition of Scripture. Maybe you don't know this, but the Wesleyan Church still subscribes to inerrancy. <clears throat> Excuse me. Clear inerrancy. The Wesleyan Church, in its discipline, in its doctrinal statement, says that we subscribe to inerrancy in all 66 original manuscripts. So we have the highest view of Scripture. On paper, we do. But the Nazarene Church is a little different. It says it subscribes to inerrancy, but then it qualifies what it means by that. It says they, they believe in inerrancy, and then they say in matters of salvation. So the Bible is inerrant when it's talking about salvation, but perhaps not necessarily as clearly inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and true when it's talking about other issues. So there's a different definition of Scripture here, right? Wesleyan, inerrant, period, in all 66 original manuscripts. Nazarene, inerrant, in matters of salvation, which opens up the door, cracks the door a bit for discussions outside of direct reference to salvation. So with that as a fact, I raised my hand after the general superintendent was done making this presentation and where she had played the Holy Spirit trump card on the debate by saying the winds of the Holy Spirit are blowing through the room right now, I raised my hand and I just asked a simple question. I said, I'm just curious, if we do merge, which definition of Scripture will we use? Will we use the Wesleyan definition, or will this new denomination that comes about as the result of the merger use the Nazarene definition of Scripture? I'm just curious, which definition of Scripture will the new denomination whatever we call it, use. And there was a pregnant pause in the room, and one of the other leaders of the church, a man who had formerly been a general superintendent, responded to me. And he said, in front of everybody else, 
we believe the differences are insignificant. Now, I think there are a lot of problems in this scenario that I painted for you. Number one, I don't think the differences between the Nazarene definition of Scripture and the Wesleyan definition of Scripture are insignificant at all. In fact, I think we can see evidence of those differences playing themselves out in very clear ways in the cultural debate right now. The Nazarene propensity to embrace side B Christianity, the gay Christian movement, the celibate gay Christian LGBTQ movement, identifying yourself by your inclinations, that that's the way God made you, and there's nothing wrong with that. The Nazarene Church is buying that particular argument quite robustly right now. Not universally, but robustly from the top down. And the reason for that, I would argue, is the definition of Scripture. So my point is this. The definition of Scripture matters. The trump card matters. The trump card should be the Bible, not the winds of the Holy Spirit in this particular situation. And I was watching this air play out before my very eyes. So be careful. Be careful when you assess a movement. Don't be too quick to play the Holy Spirit trump card on the debate, because when you do, you're going to shut down the conversation. You might want to listen to the guy who raises his hand and says, but what about the Bible? The sort of discernment has two edges. Quench not the Holy Spirit, but test all things. Test them with what? Scriptures. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.